question for you is a lot of squash fans, not myself, mind you, a lot of squash fans think that the reason that squash isn't in the Olympics is because of refereeing. So as the head of refereeing, Lee Drew, are you the reason that squash is not in the Olympics? I'm pretty sure it's bigger than me and it's bigger than refereeing. <laughs> I think there's a lot goes on behind the scenes and a lot of information that maybe we don't necessarily see from the outside looking in, in terms of what it involves. But although I think it would obviously make it better if the game was free-flowing and everyone behaved immaculately and we didn't talk about referees, then... Yeah. But, but is it the difference? I don't think it's the deciding factor right now. Okay, so checking that box, not Lee Drew's fault that uh, <laughs> squash is not in the Olympics. <laughs> There's a lot of things that are my fault, but that's not one of them. About to leave, already packing. Come with me, I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know. What about this? This call is being recorded. Fans, we are back for another edition of the Roundup, catching up with the weekly headlines, news, and results from the professional tour. Bill, it's just me and you right now. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Um, I, last week, we talked about this. PJ said that he had receipts and that he's always available. So um, I did I did throw it up on the WhatsApp message. Hey, doing an interview uh, with Lee Drew tomorrow. If anyone's interested, hop on. You had already told me that you weren't available. PJ, assuming... Assuming he's doing some sort of field to kitchen eating, uh, he's probably at a field to kitchen restaurant because we know those are his favorite. Uh, yeah. Crickets, cricket, crickets from uh, no pun intended. Crickets from PJ. I think pun intended. Um, yeah, I think that his satellite phone doesn't work on the island he's on, so it's fair. Look, <laughs> it's a rough life. He's he's prepping for his uh, his uh, PSA TV debut, which I think right now is scheduled for sometime in late October. So he's got to get his notes, you know, got to get, got to get fully, fully prepared. There's a lot of pressure on him now that, uh, you know, Lisa Aitken, uh, Johnny Williams, there's a lot, there's a lot of people out there uh, vying for his, vying for his spot. It's a big target he wears on his back it is. and, uh, and, but he wears it well, right. like many things. Right. Yeah. So, well, we wanted, um, even though the scheduling on our end didn't quite work out, we wanted to try and keep this show rolling around. So we we did a different approach, a similar one that we tried with Alex Goff, where you interviewed someone. And I wonder, do we need a different segment for this? Like call it Buckshot or something? <laughs> if you if you had told me we were going to name this segment, I probably would have got up a little bit early this morning and had a little more coffee. But uh, yeah, Buckshot's fine for now. Buckshot. For now. <laughs> for now well it t- it ties into all your socials right yeah, that's true that is v- that is very true yeah it's very true all right so we'll call this a working title buckshot so this is a buckshot and um you had lee drew on who um you and i've both known for a long time and I, I, he's one of the guys in the game i really respect like his knowledge is just off the charts uh his you know he's so level-headed uh his demeanor is great which kind of makes him perfect for the role he has now of leading the officiating, especially with the new organization of the World Squatch Officiating called WSO. So tell us, how how did the interview go? Connor, it was almost 24 hours ago. You really think I remember anything from 24 <laughs> hours ago? It was literally 24 hours ago of from right now. I, <laughs> it's the mad rush that we do to get these episodes exactly. out. Exactly. Um, no, it, it, I, I'm only slightly kidding because you did ask before this, like, hey, maybe talk about some highlights of the interview. I was like, hmm, okay. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, it was great. He was he was very open, um, very honest. I mean, officiating, let's, let's face it, it's a hot button issue in squash right now, but it's also a little dry, right? 
I mean, it's, 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 it's officiating. It's not, not the actual play on court. And especially in the off season, um, talking about talking, officiating is not in any other sport during the off season. The last thing that anybody talks about is officiating, right? They talk about the players, they talk about who's doing what, who's got new sponsorships, who's getting traded to what team and other sports, yada, yada, yada. So talking about officiating, but it was good. Um, we, we, we discussed a lot. I brought up, you know, obviously how to bring up Mustafa Saul, how to bring up uh, the Noran Gohar incident uh, at the WTF. So um, he, and he was very honest and open uh, about that. And also what, what his goals are as, in his role. I think what I took away from it most with that Lee grasps how important his role is going forward uh, mm-hmm. with, with the PSA yeah. and with the WSL. Yeah. And I think that was really highlighted when you basically ask him the difference, because he's a great commentator. He does a lot of it and which would he'd rather do or which one. So he had a very interesting answer there. I won't spoil that, but um, what surprised you? Was there anything that surprised you? Um, how cool his hair was. I mean, dude has great hair, right? <laughs> Is that, oh, oh, you mean about his answers? No. Oh uh, yeah. No, yeah. no I, you know what? He, he's such a smart guy. And I, every conversation I've had with him has always been, um, um, very illuminating. He's, uh, he's very professional even in person. I mean, he's, he's very social and whatnot, but even when you talk to him in person, it, it, it's all business with Lee and he kept it that way during the, yeah. during the interview. Is that, is that my, my way of saying that he didn't laugh at any of my jokes and I was a little disappointed? Yeah, a little bit, but, um, but I, I tried, I tried, I tried. You know, uh, what I thought, I, I really appreciated his candor. Mm-hmm. You know, he really, you can sometimes get those political answers, and he really went to every detail, even talking about compensation of these referees on a daily basis, which was a surprise to you. Shocking, shocking. Did you, I mean, we, yeah. again, we won't spoil it, but, I mean, were you surprised at that amount, or do you, do, no, do you know? No, because I've set it up, and I, I, I um, when I was at U.S. Squash, we purposely we took a different approach from the WSF, which is just absolutely ridiculous, the compensation they were given. And with our, we just try to emphasize or spend more behind it, which is really, in the grand scheme, is nominal, but it was a significant increase to these refs. And we, I saw the difference. Right. I thought a quote that really jumped out to me was the gap between the refs and the players in terms of having, we have full-time professional squash players and we basically have part-time volunteer referees. Not anymore. Now we have two. And then, Not, and then there I were know. two. Oh. How about that? Spoiler alert. Breaking news. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Breaking news. <laughs> All right. Well, good. I'm, I'm glad um, we'll, we'll jump into the episode now, but I'm glad we got a chance to keep it rolling. And anything else to tee up uh, this episode? Uh, ladies and gentlemen, now Lee Drew. Welcome to a special edition of The Rundown. We have a very special guest. He is the PSA Director of Refereeing. Did I get that correct? Well, it's actually just in the process of changing to Head of WSO, so Head of World Squash Officiating. The Head of World Squash Officiating, Lee Drew. Welcome to the show, Lee. Uh, Hi, Bill. I'm going to lob a softball question at you first, uh, just to you know get us off on the right foot here, because I don't want to. I know any talk of refereeing is usually contentious, and you, on the internet, if you go there, you'll see it's it's the cause of every problem in the world at this point. So, um, question for you is: a lot of squash fans, not myself, mind you, a lot of squash fans think that the reason that squash isn't in the Olympics is because of refereeing. So, as the head of refereeing, Lee Drew, are you the reason that squash is not in the Olympics? I'm pretty sure it's bigger than me and it's bigger than refereeing. <laughs> um, why it's not in there yet 
I mean, obviously, you can look at the way the game's played and the way the game's officiated and behaviours of players, and that can attribute that that can contribute. But it's definitely not the reason alone. That's for sure. There's a lot of a lot of things that need to be ticked and uh, ticked, and a lot of people that need to be pleased to to, to get um, a sport into the Olympics. And it also has to be the right fit for what they're looking for at that moment in time. So I think there's a lot goes on behind the scenes and a lot of information that maybe we don't necessarily see from the outside looking in, in terms of what it involves. But although I think it would obviously make it better if the game was free-flowing and everyone behaved immaculately and we didn't talk about referees, then... Yeah. But but is it the difference? I don't think it's the deciding factor right now. Okay, so checking that box, not Lee Drew's fault that uh, the squash is not in the Olympics. <laughs> There's a lot of things that are my fault, but that's not my Right. Okay. Well, I, I guess initially, I mean, I, I was, I was, wait, I got after playing, I took two years out, then came back into squash and started coaching, um, then got involved with the England program quite quickly with, with players that I was working with doing quite well. So then I became England junior national coach and was in that role for over 10 years as, as a junior national coach. But at the same time as doing that, which which was a part time role, even though really it's a full time role, as a part time job. Mm-hmm. Um, on the side of that, I then started commentating. So then I was commentating, and then became lead commentator for the women's tour when we sort of when the the two tours merged, and then kept doing some bits on the men's side as well. And then while I was doing the commentary, I was then approached to see whether I'd be interested in actually working with the referees and the players in trying to, to steer it and trying to help on that front, which got me into the officiating side. Um, and then that sort of has just taken over and evolved in terms of, again, it was a it's another full-time job that was given as a part-time role and right. is a case of trying to trying to do it all, but it, you know, it's a huge job that can have a massive impact on the game. So that's that's basically where it evolved from. And then it's it's found me into sort of WSO, which was formed maybe four years ago between PSA and WSF to create this sort of um, autonomous body that sits there and can actually handle officiating matters. So obviously the main mission of it is to try and standardise officiating across the world so that you're not getting different messages in different parts of the world so that you know if players go to Asia it's not different to when they go to Oceania or to Europe or to to America to North America or Pan America Um, so it's to standardize it and then to be able to achieve that by creating sort of online online tools basically so our online tools are basically the courses that we provide so um, member nations keep control of it through the early levels but then level four and five becomes a world squash officiating controlled sort of um area uh, level and then we've also created player courses now i'm sure we'll go into this sort of stuff but it's about yeah for, play- sh- for sure that was a question down the yeah. road could yeah so are, i won't i won't there, go into that too much then no no are, are there wso officials who aren't psa officials or in vice versa are there psa referees who aren't wso no so to so to be able to officiate on the PSA World Tour, you have to have uh, at least a level three theory qualification. 
Um, and then, and then, like I said, the member nations. So each sort of national governing body then looks after the practical side of mm-hmm. those qualifications up until that. But we need to. We're, we're just sure that at that point they've gone through the whole of the theory that you can find online. Right. And, uh, big one. Looking on looking on the WSO website uh, the last few days in preparation for, and yes I, I prepared diligently for these, <laughs> for these type of interviews. Um, <laughs> I don't see there, there's not a great volume of referees on that list, and it was effective as of January 2023. How many WSO referees are there? Are you sure you were looking at the World Squash officiating site, or were you looking uh, at the WSF site? Because <laughs> there's no there's no list of referees on the World Squash officiating site. Okay, then. So I'm guessing that on the front page of the uh, WSF site, when you click officiating, that's the list that comes up. Then. Yeah, so that's that's the old WSF list of referees that were WSF, World Squash Federation referees. Got it. So, um, so are you telling me, Lee, that the WSF has not been diligent in updating their website? No, no. I think that's that's their list as it currently stands of the referees that were their WSF referees. But that's uh-huh. that's different to WSO. Okay. So, and then the WSF have obviously they're, they're looking to change it all over, but they didn't want to take that list off the WSF site until the level four and five had been rolled out fully. So that transition, that transition will have happened completely by the end of this year. So by the by December, you won't see <laughs> that list on there anymore. Got it. So I'm to- I'm totally clear on that. So not that the role of the WSF is not uh, is not confusing as is. Yeah. Um, so a little more confusing. So my my research in that in that uh, in that situation did not pay off. The new um, WSO site has launched recently. Um, it's yes. like the the 2.0 of the site. And yeah, I did go through that with the right, videos okay. and all. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, no, I, I'm I'm uh, I, I'm very very intrigued by refereeing. I, I'm a very poor squash player. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen me play squash. I'm sea level at best but when it comes to uh, tournaments that i've played in because i lose frequently and because you lose frequently you have to referee as an adult that's how mm. it works in tournaments i i like to ref um I, I enjoy refing i don't know all the nuances and all the rules but i do know that in club level play anyways the most important thing as a ref is to shout your calls out very loudly <laughs> and yeah. and make sure make sure that they hear them and when they turn around to argue just say no that's my call and that usually stops any adult because they usually don't know the rules anyway. So, um, so I, I, I like refereeing. I'm one of the few people who enjoy and go when I go to a tournament volunteer to ref. So, uh, well, I tell you what, I, the the player courses, the player courses would be perfect for you because they yeah. help you to improve your game, yeah. and also make sure that you're you've got complete clarity on the rules and what on you're doing rules. in terms of the calls and stuff. And I mean, they're they're to be honest, I, I look at them and they're very affordable. The whole point was to make them affordable. Mm, um, very much so. You know, the the player courses, there's an introductory level and a tournament level, and they're only fifteen dollars, and it's a three year certificate. So, you know, you're basically investing in your development at five dollars a year, um, right? Which which right. I think is affordable globally. But but interestingly enough, WSF have actually just made it mandatory for all the juniors going to the World Juniors that's starting soon in Australia. They mm-hmm. all need to have taken the tournament level player certificate. As part. And you kind of alluded to it. Um, is is there a thought and is there already in place a, for a PSA player exam that will be mandatory for PSA players to take in order to participate on the tour? So this is it. This is, this is the course that they will take. And as of January 24, I believe, it will mm-hmm. be mandatory as part of their membership that... To be able to be members 
from January 24, which is when all the renewals are, that this course will be incorporated into that membership. So it'll right. be part of the requirements. So an online course is an online course and understanding the value of that. Is there any thought to any kind of practical courses being done pre-tournament at PSA events? So where the players get together and there's an official or you there more going over because you, you look at some questions, you answer the questions, you tick a box, you get it right or you get it wrong. As opposed as you know, there's a lot of nuance in squash. Is, is there thought to having a referee clinic for lack of a better word at PSA events for the so- players? Yeah, so I mean, obviously, the course the course itself actually goes into things like common causes of interference. It also goes into sort of code of conduct, behavior, etiquette, things like that. So there's a whole sort of area where we're trying to inform people because, again, it's that whole thing that if you've not been informed, it's very difficult to be challenged on a behavior or or what you're doing. So it's getting that information out there in the first instance. So you go right, okay, well, look you know this, it shouldn't be a surprise when this happens. Um, so so that's sort of step one. I mean, obviously, when we're at tournaments, we, we're da- having daily meetings anyway, where we review clips, look at situations of what happened the day before, and then players and their coaches and different people can come into those meetings as well. It's sort of a bit of an open, it's an open door sort of thing there, where they can actually come in and be part of those those meetings and give their input or have their say. Now, in terms of the actual preparation, the other thing that PSA are going to look to get out is a player directive, which will be based on some of the things that have happened this past season um, and looking at that and then basically having a directive of what they should be doing or what, what they're going to be looking for in this next season or what referees might be looking for in the, in the coming season. And then there's going to be a player meeting which is going to go over a few different things, different aspects, but part of it will be the the player directive and I guess the WSO stuff. Um, and that will be, that's going to be held during the first event. So when Paris, Paris starts. So Right. How are the officials evaluated? Give me, give me the process behind evaluation of officials. So if we see someone, while someone is refereeing a PSA event, be it a platinum event, be it a bronze event, a gold event, are they being evaluated every time they referee? Is it, what's the process behind that? Yeah, it's, it's not every time. So it's not every time. And it's an area that we need to keep building upon. But uh, referees, there'll be times where they have appraisals. So there'll be an appraiser sitting there. Um, there'll be an appraiser sitting there and and they will then give them feedback on the appraisal afterwards where they're judged on a different different sort of criteria and aspect of officiating, um, which might be technical knowledge. It might be delivery as well um, and match, match management, communication and all that sort of stuff, as well as getting decisions right and wrong um, and marking. So there, there's that side of it. So there, there's appraisers. But obviously when we have an appraiser, you're then you're paying an extra person. So then you're looking at budgets for that as right. well. So that comes into it. Uh, we have got the ability to do on, online appraisals. So we're doing if we're doing more online appraisals. And then referees are also encouraged when they go to events to fill in their self-reflection forms. So on the WSO site, there's a, there's a self-reflection form that a referee can download. And then they reflect on their learnings from the events, so their experiences, so challenges they might have had, what went well, what didn't go so well, what they would change next time. Um, and then there's space in there for extra feedback. Now, moving forward into this season, what, what we're going to also look to do is pr- develop a one-pager where someone can come with an opinion of feedback 
on a performance. So, for example, I don't know, it might be a top coach in the world has feedback on a particular referee's performance mm-hmm. and they'll be able to to sort of submit that feedback in a one-page document. So it's a, it gives another it gives another avenue of being able to provide feedback as well as sort of just, you know, being inside a bubble where it's the same people appraising each other. It's very right. easy to think you're doing a very good job. Whereas if you can get sort of, I guess, appropriate and respected views from outside of that, then, it, right. then it's very valuable. So it's trying to get sort of the, the bits of feedback from as many different angles as possible, but it's about trying to get it as regular as possible. Now, I mean, as you know, officiating is a really neglected sector so far. That's one of the major challenges. You know, no one wants to do it because it's not attractive as right. a career. There is no career pathway as of yet. You know, we're looking to to um, hire our first two professional referees, which is coming very soon, to make sure that people can see there is a career pathway. But there's, there's such a neglected sort of amount of money that's invested into officiating. You go to tournaments, half, half of the time last year was was battling trying to actually get budgets up with with tournaments because it's not something that they necessarily think about. It's one of the right. major influences in the success of a tournament, but it's also the first area where people want to really have a, a low budget, cut right. cut costs, you know, get get people in. And it's it's about no, well we need to try and get the right people in the right place at these events at the right level. Right. Um, and we need to be able to remunerate them accordingly. And for that, we need budgets. So so there's been a real sort of push at trying to inform organisers about the budgets that they'll require to be able to get the best refereeing teams that they possibly can. There's a hierarchy at events, I feel anyways, of the importance, and it goes MC, referees, players. So mm. that's my feeling. That's my feeling on that. I know I'm, I might not be in the in the majority on that, but I think is that as UMC sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I have no. I don't know what you're talking about. Later. <laughs> so, I mean, Michael that, Absalom would agree with you. Who? Michael Absalom. I'm I'm not familiar with that name. Have you not seen Michael doing all his uh, MCing? No, no, I'm not. Like I'm un, have I'm, you been I'm watching un- Squash? I'm not. I'm unfamiliar with him. <laughs> I put him out of my mind. I can't have Michael Absalom exist in my world. So right, okay. uh, he, he's not a name. And I think we talked about this beforehand. You weren't going to bring up Michael Absalom in this uh, <laughs> podcast. So this this part will be edited out for sure. Okay. Based on what you what you've been saying, and always read online, and always hear people on the outside or on the inside talking. Hey, why would anybody want to do this based on what they're paid? So can you tell me? And it doesn't have to be by individual for a platinum event. Just aside from housing, aside from flights and things like that, what what is a referee paid to referee a platinum event on the PSA tour? Um, well, it averages out around the sort of the $190, $200 mark across a, a day. A day, yeah. Um, but that's significantly up from what it was before. Now, it varies slightly. So US and US squash pay slightly more mm-hmm. on average per day um, for their events. But of course, it's, you know, it's all... It's all relative, isn't it, in terms of cost of living and expectancies and stuff. But across the board, that's basically what it averages out at. If you stay for the entirety of an event, it sort of works out around that 190. But that that also includes their per diems, so which which might be two meals per day that they need to, to buy from that as well. So the 190 is also includes possibly per diem for, for yeah for a couple of meals. So for right. a, for a dinner and a lunch. But like I said, that, that is a significant improvement from before. 
Now, I guess the other side of it as well is why would you do it? Well, you're making a difference to the game. You know, you're having a huge mm. impact. It's, it is an incredible experience in the sense that you get to go to amazing cities, stay in really good hotels. You're around elite players in the world and mm-hmm. you're in that kind of performance environment. So I think, um, and you're achieving, aren't you, by being at the top of the game if you're, you know, if you're dedicated enough and you're good enough. So, but, question, but the money does need to keep improving. That's the other. Yeah, thing. I mean, it was shockingly low. I ha- I had no idea, honestly. I, I haven't been involved in that side of it at US Squash. I assumed it was some. It was double double that, to be honest with you, per day. Mm. And I had no idea didn't that it, it did not include the per diem. So, um, so a couple issues with uh, refereeing. This is always something having emceed and having been on the inside of a few PSA events. Do you think that's an issue that? The referees are so close to the players and I'm not talking physically. I'm talking in the tournament. They ride the buses with the players. They stay at the same hotel as the players. They eat breakfast with the players. So you think that that familiar familiarity breeds contempt in some ways, but also makes the referees reticent maybe to use code of conduct and things such as that against the player who they know that they may see on the bus that day or in the lobby of the hotel. Do you think there's any relation to that? Because in other sports, it's unheard of for the referee uh, and the officiating crews to be that close to the players. That's interesting. I think, I think when you're, when you're looking at, I, I mean, I would expect them to be professional and I would expect them to, to deliver what they need to. So if the code of conduct is required, then they should be delivering it regardless of the situations. But um, it's quite an interesting thought that that doesn't actually happen in other sports. They keep them apart, I mean, pur- purposely, and understanding that budgets and squash probably might not allow that, like separate hotels and separate transportation. But it is, I mean, it's more, I think, anti-corruption in other sports is why they do it. They don't want the players near the officials. You can understand why they why they would do that. Um, I mean, I think there's also something, though, in terms of you actually build a bit of respect and understanding and knowledge, and you, you share those opinions sometimes when you are around people because you start to get an understanding you know, when you when you're you're hearing discussions between players, and then you're hearing discussions between referees, and it, it does connect it all up slightly as well. So I think I think it's one of those ones where it has a benefit. Mm-hmm. It does have a benefit, also has downsides, and it, I guess it's weighing up the the positives and negatives with it. But I can definitely see why other sports would do it. I can also see some of the benefits that you can have by getting to understand how how players tick and what happens and being around that same same kind of environment. So you touched on it earlier a bit, talking about the path for professional referees, the, the Walter family uh, investment into the PSA. Is there money for what you talked about earlier, the path to have professional referees? And you're talking about two professional referees being signed very shortly. Is the refereeing part of the Walter investment strategy? Um, it will be part of the strategies and there will be some of the budget set aside for officiating and for refereeing. That isn't, that wasn't the reason that we're going to be employing two, two referees. That was happening anyway before it was okay. confirmed. Um, but there will definitely be some, you know, I think it's one of those things where officiating has to grow alongside everything else. So I, I look at it at the moment. I go, well, there's a massive disparity in what's going on because you've got elite professional players who dedicate their lives to performance and improving and delivering what they can their best on on a day at that level and then you've sort of got volunteers who take off take time off who take annual leave to come out and yes they're still trying to prepare and do the best but 
they're not dedicating their lives to it and they're not able to because of the whole sort of the, the career path and the time frames and stuff involved. Now, that's a gap that we need to just keep closing. So you, you would think just it, by that thought and it's very self, if the game is going to grow a lot with, with this investment and tournaments are going to grow, then the, the gap will become wider if you don't actually put any kind of extra investment into the officiating side of it. So I think it's it's crucial that, that we're trying to bridge a gap, not increase a gap. So we're going to start with two. And obviously, you you know, and I know that's not enough, right? Those two people, what will the role be? Will it be they will be the officials at a platinum event? Or will they be more mentoring? Will they be more doing some of the evaluation? It'll be 50-50. So you'll have sort of 16 events, 15, 16 events per year mm-hmm. where they'll be officiating. And mm-hmm. that could that could be at slightly different levels on the PSA World Tour. And then the other part, part of it will be around the development of appraisers and the appraisal system and also the development of referees, educating them and also getting messages out there. So things like the, the, the webinars or refinars that we might do where we hold them after an event for referees to to see what's happening and to to give consistent mm-hmm. messages and things like that to reflect um it'll be that kind of work so it'll be it'll be development working with nations working with federations as well as then also officiating and dedicating some time to sort of improving their officiating is there any fear um just a, again <laughs> thoughts that go through my head is there any fear only there only being two of them that they'll i mean they're going to have to be pretty thick skin because they're going to have a target on their back uh a vision they're refereeing a platinum event they're a paid official everyone's going to know right like everyone's going to know those are he is one or she is one of the paid officials like one of the full-time employees um why are they getting the calls wrong yeah well, i mean it's subjective isn't it everyone's going to I think you've got to be tough-skinned, haven't you? As soon as you put yourself out there, as soon mm. as you put yourself out there, you've got to be thick-skinned because people, you've put you've put yourself in a position where it's very easy for people to take pot shots at you, isn't it? You for know, sure. It's, it's an easy thing to do. So you are putting yourself out there. You do have to be brave. You do have to back yourself with it. But equally, everyone knows that squash is subjective and you can have three people in a room looking at one situation and all of them disagree. And, and it's just about it's about understanding that that is the case and that is the way it is because you know you're talking about the online stuff i look at these online forums and no one can agree with each other on there so so you know everyone's very strongly opinionated but you right. might have one person that's really strongly opinionated looking at a situation one way and then the other person's really strongly opinionated seeing the exact same situation completely disagreeing with them so so to think that there's going to be one person that's going to solve that and and fix it all, you know, it's it's quite naive. So it's understanding that the work that's going into someone and then their delivery and what they're doing, that they are working on it and that they're looking to do the best that they can with it and looking to improve the whole time. And, you know, at the end of the day, you pick the best of what we've got at the moment, people in the right situations to be able to do fulfill a role. And there's a reason that those people are coming into those roles. And and like I said, it's not just the officiating side, it's the development side as well. What are your what are your thoughts on a zero tolerance policy for stroke lets and strokes? 
Uh, how do you mean zero tolerance on lets and strokes? Meaning, meaning no dissent. So in baseball, there's uh, obviously uh, in baseball, you could argue with an umpire about whether someone's safe or out. You could argue about different things. You cannot argue in baseball about balls and strikes. It's automatic ejection. Strokes and right. lets are kind of our balls and strikes, right? Where it happens all the time, almost almost every play. Um, thoughts on no dissent at all allowed for stroke and let calls? I, I, think, I think it's important that a player can, can ask you know, because I think I think there should. I mean, the more we see of what what we've been seeing, the more you have to move towards being very strict with what's going on. And you know, rug, rugby and the way that players interact with referees in rugby is a great example because it's very respectful. Yep. Um, and that's where we need to strive towards. I don't think it's necessarily because. A referee needs, in our game, which is different to, say, baseball, I'd imagine. I don't know too much about baseball. But um, we've got so many variables going on, haven't we? We've got two players playing in a confined space, and we've got three variables. We've got the two players, and we've got the ball. Now, when something is happening and it keeps reoccurring, Mm -hmm. the referee has to be able to give a directive, and sometimes the player has to be able to inquire what that directive is or what they need to do to be able to solve it. Now, I do think the, ref- the players should not be shouting out decisions or shouting at a referee before a referee's thought about the decision and given a decision, because that is trying, you know, you, whether, whether you're trying to or not, you are inadvertently influencing the referee in that situation. Mm-hmm. So, so I, think, I think there, there's a case of, you know, you can't do that. If you do do that, next time it is a, a code of conduct. But... Going back to your point, I think what we need is we need real clarity around the code of conduct and what is allowed and what isn't. And I think that's where this directive that goes out before the start of the season from PSA to the players is going to be absolutely crucial. Because um, it needs to be tightened up, doesn't it? I don't, I don't think anyone anywhere would say that it doesn't. I'll tell you what, though, Bill, and I've been thinking about this a bit when I'm, when I'm watching squash, is generally contentious matches happen when the two players want the referee to win the points for them and they're not going to back their squash to win the points. I agree a hundred percent. And that's where, and again, this is me editorializing. That's where the referees need to step up and give out the conducts and really take control of the match. So many times Uh, we, we talk about it in, in our other podcasts that you get so much of, uh, Mr. Assal, I don't want to go to conduct. Mr. Elias, I don't want to go to conduct. Mm. I mean, that's such a bad message to send. I would be, you know, hey, Mr. Elias, conduct warning, conduct stroke, conduct game, conduct match. To me, mm. that would stop the issue. I know it sounds simplistic, but the lack of um, forcefulness in referees and giving out conduct seemed to be pretty pretty uh, stark at the end of the year. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's a lot of code of conducts when when you actually go through them all and you see them all coming coming through. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of code of conducts given, and way more than there should be. You know, it should be should be a rare thing, shouldn't it? I mean, yes. I think back to when I was playing and how many times I got code of conducts. It's not not very often that you'd be getting a conduct stroke, and you'd be pretty embarrassed and pretty upset if you got a conduct right. stroke. So right. that's that's sort of the flip side of it. It's quite a serious thing, isn't it? But um, I mean, I, I agree. What, what we have seen is the the use of consequence, you know, to a behaviour. If you keep doing this, I will go to code of conduct. Right. It doesn't stop anything, does it? Because they just go, well, okay, that's that's fine. I'll just keep doing what I'm doing, and you'll keep warning me. So, so you're absolutely correct. The the 
the consequence, the threat doesn't have an impact if it's never followed followed up upon. So it's crucial that that you know if if there's an action that is deemed to be inappropriate um, and should be it violates sort of the code of conduct, then mm-hmm. they should be enforcing it with with the conduct warning and then the conduct stroke, and they should be doing it to the letter of the rules. Clear when you when you read the rules and the wording, it's quite clear <laughs> yes. what constitutes code of conduct. So, talk about the the video referee. Do you think the asking for reviews? Do you think that's been a success or a failure when it comes to lets and strokes? The use of video referees. Um, I think it was a massive success in terms of tidying up bad decisions. You know, you know the shocking decision when when it's just wrong and it's called wrong in the time, and then the video referee comes in and it's a safety net. The player can go to it, that it gets overruled. Now, I think I think it is that case of, you know, generally when you're going to the video referee, it should be, I, I, there's a part of me that thinks about, well, should it be that, is there any reason that I should be overruling this or mm-hmm. should be changing my decision based on, you know, is there evidence that would make me change my decision in this situation right. for the overrule? Um, I think... What it has caused is there are stoppages and maybe there are too many video reviews, whether it's the referee going for the video referee decision or whether it's the players reviewing a decision. Um, And it's about minimizing that or trying to get that process happening quicker. But there's definitely cases where you need it. You know, there's, there's cases where the match referee from the back, you can't necessarily see the distances. You can't quite see how much space there is in front of a player where the ball is and, and things like that. And it can it is condensed without a camera, let alone let alone um, with a camera. And sometimes those other angles will show those distances. I think so. I think it's it's important, but it's also important that we we get the balance right in terms of how many we can have, how often we go there, how long they take, what the communication is between the the match referee and the video referee in those situations. So it's all sure. all things that need to be looked at. So that leads to my follow-up question, and I know this is a little bit inside baseball. Uh, I know you don't follow baseball. Can you just go through the process? So I'm playing. I'm unhappy with a call, a stroke or a let call. I say review. What happens at that point? Well, so the, the match referee will announce that the, the, the player is reviewing, and it will go to the video referee. Okay. So the video referee will then look at what they see within within the action and what they're what they're noticing, whether whether it's movements, where the ball is. So they'll be working out where where's player A. So for example, where's the incoming player? Where's mm-hmm. player B? Um, you know where where is player B moving? Where's player A moving? Where's the striking point or the striking zone of the ball in relation mm-hmm. to the players? Are they and talking then, to the official? who made the original call during this, are they discussing it? Um, they will be discussing it, yeah. So they'll, okay. they'll, be, they'll be discussing what they're seeing. So the video referee will be saying what, what they're seeing on the, on the replays. And then once they've decided, they will then give their decision. And it'll be, the, it'll be the, because it's gone to the video referee, it'll be the video referee's fi- call on and, se- and final say will be with the video referee as to what decision comes out. And, and Does, basically, the video referee will then, if there, especially in, if there's an overall, it's really important that the video referee gives a very clear explanation 
of the reason for the overall and what they've seen so that when the match referee who's given their original decision is announcing it, they can say, you know, stroke, this was given because, and then they give mm-hmm. the, the, the sort of the directive. Are there referees who make a call and say, and then they it goes to video referee and they argue and they say, he says, no, this is what happened. And he argues, or is it the video ref who has the final say and it is what it is. If the video ref uh, makes a call, that's the call. There's no talking him out of it. No, well, not if you've got a strong video referee because the strong video referee will stick with the decision that they're seeing. They might listen to a rationale, but they'll they'll see what they, they would see. The same as if me and you are looking at it you make your first call, player comes to me because they're not happy. I then look at it and go, well, look, this is what I'm seeing mm-hmm. and this is my decision. Now, the time to really review it is the next day. Right. You know, when we look at those clips, um, when we watch those clips back the next day as a group, that's when they, the, the match referee and the video referee will say, well, look, this is what I thought. This is what I saw. The video referee will say the same. And then as a group, it's then discussed and sort of hammered out of it. Is there, is there thought to making those conversations public? As a viewer, I would love to listen to that discussion. Yeah, yeah. If there's if the technology allows it, so that we can we can work it and we can get the sort of the, the sound out and we can get the process tighter. Mm-hmm. I think I think the process needs to be tighter. You know, you look at um, examples of of cricket potentially where they they have a very clear sort of. That, you know they have real clarity in the wording that's used and how they they go through it. We're big cricket fans, by the way, just to let you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's the slightly better version of baseball, isn't it? <laughs> exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> no. But those 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 other sports that also use sort of um, mm-hmm. technology, mm-hmm. they've also not quite got it right, have they? Because there's a lot of times where I'm no. watching and going, "Oh, this is taking a long time," or you know, right. it's still confusing me. I still don't quite understand that. So. So, you know, there, there's sort of those challenges with them as well. Is there a thought of, and, and this is to me the way they, uh, something I've always thought about, understanding that some calls are more difficult than others, some lets and strokes are more difficult to discern than others. But what happens is sometimes the call comes back really quick and it's decisive and it's like, yes, it's a lot. And the ref- video referee has made that decision. Sometimes it takes a long time. And then you're like, well, you know what? They're not really decisive. They don't really know. Is there a thought of making it, look, it's 30 seconds or it's 20 seconds or it is, this is the time you have to do it and then you have to give out the call. So there's no thought of like, well, they don't really know or they, you know, they're they're just as confused as we are. So I've, I've never really thought about putting a time restriction on it, but what I always do gauge it on is the number of clips that they're watching back. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think if you're getting up to four replays, then you've gone beyond it, it feels too long you know when you're sitting there in the audience and right it goes through four replays you're going right okay this is a taking a long long time and you're watching the big screen and mm-hmm. th- there's that dead space of nothing happening and then as as someone watching i then start looking at going well you can't overrule this now because you're not sure you've watched My point it exactly. so many, you've watched it so many times Mm-hmm. You can't be sure enough to be able to overrule what was decided right. courtside. Right. So then when there are overrules in those situations, it does surprise me because I'm like, oh, I wonder how they've suddenly come to an overrule when actually they've had to watch it that many times and taken right. that long about it. They couldn't have been that sure. Last question on the refereeing, uh, the video refereeing. A lot of times referees in a big spot, especially in a fifth game, 
or at game point or game ball, um, they'll go to the video ref without being asked. Is that looked upon as, hey, that's a sage referee who doesn't know what he saw, so he's doing this and it's it's a good thing? Or is it like, you know what, this referee is trying to bail himself out because he doesn't know the call? Well, um, I guess it can be looked at either way from the outside. Can't so, as, as, a, as an assessor, as an assessor, how do you look at that? If someone cont- does that more often than not, well, it depends on the situation and the, and the decision. Like the the first the first thing that they're always looking for is fair outcome of a rally and mm-hmm. and and then safety. So, fair outcome of a rally, if it's a difficult decision and neither player has a review, you know, remaining then you would look at that and go, it's a really difficult situation. It's mm-hmm. tough to call. Neither player have got reviews. It's a pivotal moment in a match where it could be the deciding moment in the match. It makes complete sense to go to video review, to go to a video referee decision in that situation. Now, likewise, if it's, I don't know, it's 10-8 and it's a very simple decision, so a very simple basic stroke, and then they go to video referee decision. Then you're looking at it completely differently, aren't you? Because you go, right. well, that was just a very simple, basic decision. Should have just given it, you know, we're done. Um, so really, you know, it depends. You can look at it either way, but it depends on what's just happened in front of you. But I can completely understand if, it, if it's a really difficult decision and you want to check distance of players to the ball and neither player's got a review and it's a pivotal moment in the match, then... For me, it makes complete sense to go to video video referee decision, but not just because it's match ball or game ball or a crucial moment. I think you should a referee should be still backing themselves in those right. situations, especially if players have got reviews. Right. Um, you know, there's no absolutely no need. They need to back themselves, see what they've seen, and go with it. Now, the other problem is is obviously, you know, you're you're asking me about it and what an appraiser might think, but it's also what the players think. And if you go too often to a video referee decision, you lose the players immediately because the players will by instinct just go, well, you know, one, you, you're not, you've not got the courage to go there. You're not, mm-hmm. you've not got the courage to give the decisions that you think. And also I'm not even sure you know what you're thinking because you keep going, you keep throwing it to someone else. So we're at the point of the show and I, I saved this till the end. We're going to call this the, the assault section. So right. it's just a couple. I mean, I couldn't. I could not have you on with uh, out <laughs> discussing Mustafa Saul. It would be uh, neglectful to our audience. So, um, first things first. Chicago Worlds semifinals. You're on. You're on with Joey, showing the video of his transgressions. Give us the thought process of showing that then, at that time before the match. Well, that well, that's a production thing, isn't it? You know, it's like I'm invited as someone who's involved with officiating to come and give a view of something the same as you've invited me on this mm-hmm. to to have a conversation with you you know i okay. was asked to come on to you know the the pro- program and um there were clips and i was there to to give my view on those clips that we were, we were seeing so it's a it's a production decision to show clips Mm-hmm. Um, they also invite a guest and obviously I was the person that was invited. They showed those clips and I basically gave my view in terms of what I was seeing with them and what the referees, you know, would be thinking about in those situations with that. So, and the so fact did, that it's, but go on. 
No, so you didn't say, hey, I think it's important that we do this before the match. This this wasn't your decision. No. So that being said, he's done a lot of the same things since then. Like a, a lot of the same things. And I'm going I'm to give, again, I'm not, I know when I have guests on, I'm not supposed to editorialize so much. To me, he, whether it's right or wrong, whether you agree with, you know, whether he's good for the game, bad for the game, what he does are penalties, right? I mean, he holds the player's wrist or holds the player's hand. He blocks, he sticks his leg out. If you believe all that is true, isn't that just up to the refs to call that on court? Is it really necessary to like suspend or ban someone for that kind of thing? Somebody does something illegal, you call them and you call it a stroke or you give it a conduct or you do what it is. It is the call on court. I don't understand why what, why what he does warrants a ban. And if it does, he's done all these things since then. Why hasn't he been banned again? Um, yeah, I mean, yes, a referee, a referee should be seeing stuff in real time and they should be awarding code of conducts when they see it and when it warrants it. And that, that also needs to be consistent across all players, shouldn't mm-hmm. it? So, sure. you know, you know, if if I do something and I get conduct stroke and then you do something that's exactly the same, you should also get conduct stroke for, for that. Sure. So, so it's really important that, that referees treat players equally right. um, and, and judge what they're doing in the moment in that situation. So how they interpret it, what they see and what they deem fit to award in terms of the decision or the code of conduct. So I think I think that's a really important sort of area of this is that you, you need to be able to deal with it in the moment. Right. Now the other the other side of it that I would say is PSA now look at these situations, look at different situations retrospectively as well. So they will, you know, if a referee goes, damn, I missed something there, that was really difficult. I missed it. I think I should award a code of conduct in that situation that mm-hmm. can be submitted retrospectively so that, you know, you don't get away with a massive block. And then not only do you win the match on that block because you mm-hmm. blocked me out, mm-hmm. but you also get zero penalty for it. So, you know, that can subsequently be put in as actually Bill just did a massive block at 10-9, shut Lee out, took him out of the equation. Referee didn't see it. It was you know, you got the point, you got the match. Um, so there's that sort of retrospective sort of aspect to it as well. And then the other side of it is when you look at the PSA articles and the disciplinary articles, you know, there's there's something to be said in terms of, well, one is all the sort of on-court and off-court behaviours in terms of actions right. and the different sides of it. But then equally, you know, if you're racking up multiple offences, then that's where that comes into question. So, I mean, I'm nothing to do with the the um, disciplinary sort of panel or disciplinary decisions, but mm-hmm. you know, I'd imagine they'd be looking at it going, "Oh, right, no, it's you know, it's it's you again, right? Okay, so what have you got this time? You've got three. You had three already. Um, what can we, you know, what are the suspensions that are eligible for this type of offence? And then they can deem what they think is correct in that in that time. So. You know, and that's that's how you actually rack up, you know, multiple things that then accumulate to someone going, well, look, you're not learning. The referees keep giving you this. You're not learning. You keep doing it. And then that's where a ban comes for for a player. And, you know, obviously you mentioned Asal and he's an example because he's a player that's been recently banned. But it would be the same. That should be the same for any player that's accumulating offences. 
Sure. For me, the difference lies with something like smashing your racket or yelling at a referee, like going off court and screaming at referees. That kind of thing deserve, is ban worthy to me. Something like grabbing a player's hand, just just call it to me. Just make the call and he gets a stroke. Who saw it though? Well, who, exactly. Who, who actually well, who actually well, saw that well, in the moment well, that's, until, that's until sport, it was though, captured right? by that camera? That's sport, though, right? I mean, that's why sports are refereed by humans. I mean, you see soccer players grab people's jerseys all the time. In football, people grab people's jerseys to stop yeah, them from catching the ball. Yeah, we don't. We go down the football route, I do we? So just a couple, two more, couple more things. Um, number one, I, I speaking of dis- PSA disciplines, and I know you said you'd have nothing to do with the handing out of the discipline. But when it comes to the – I go, I love going on the PSA discipline um, <laughs> chart and taking a look and see who's been who's been given what so and just a few things that i don't know the difference and i don't know if others do so maybe it's just for my edification um obviously we know verbal equipment abuse things like that what's the difference between uh what's the difference between dangerous play and physical abuse when it comes to disciplinary on the psa website well no i mean I, i'm not the one that came up with these articles but my interpretation would be that if you're looking at the dangerous play incorporates movements on a court. So okay. that, that can include move, moving and stopping your opponent from having clear, unobstructed, direct access to a ball. So you make significant movements that stop that, that could be deemed as being dangerous because, you know, you take me out, that that would come into the category of dangerous play. And then physical mm-hmm. abuse is when you're actually doing something that when you're lashing out, same as, same as verbal abuse, isn't it? It's when you're directing an action at someone. So dress and equipment. So give me uh, almost all the penalties. You're really the going into areas that I've got nothing no, no okay. clue about. Okay, so, so, so as far as penalties of dresses, that has something to do with what colors they're wearing on court? Yeah, that, that will be all to do with, with production. So, okay, all right. You know, so, so you're watching a streaming or you're watching a televised mm-hmm. sort of program as someone that knows nothing about the game, not, not being the expert that you are, Bill. I appreciate um, that. So, so someone that comes along hasn't seen the game before and suddenly they see two players running around the court in blue uh-huh. in the same colors of blue and they're like well i've got no idea who's who or what's going on here so that, that, gotcha. would, that would come down to that gotcha so I, I'm, I'm assuming based on your your answer that you have no idea what tournament function means and somebody got penalized for that well i know what a tournament function is a tournament function is what sponsors have that oh so have is that not sh- oh is that what that means tournament so it's just what it says it is yeah, it's a tournament function. So if you're, you know, you've got a sponsor function at a tournament, it's my obligation as a player to turn up at that function and to be part of it and to represent the the players, I guess. All right. So the, I'm, right. I'm talking, I'm now talking from having played, not not gotcha. talking from uh, okay. an official perspective. Sure. Capacity. For sure. So the last one I have is uh, there, someone was penalized for accommodation. Right. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if they stay at the wrong hotel or something. I, I'm just not <laughs> sure. I want to. We need to. We need to get to the bottom of that. What accommodation means. So. Um, um, yeah, I'm so, not sure. I'm not sure what they would have done. Okay. Hope, so gonna, hopefully, they wouldn't have gone rock and roll and <laughs> trash trashed accommodation. That's what I was wondering if they did something like they abused a front desk person. <laughs> rolling, well, back in the Rolling Stones days of throwing TVs out the windows. So this no, is this is final. And I pr- I appreciate the time you've given me. I always take when I have when I have a, a guest on. I like to take questions from my our audience and i did tell some folks that you were going to be on so this is what i think is the best question so um you could you could kind of answer this to the best of your ability and so this email comes from noron from connecticut noron from connecticut writes sometimes when there are human conditions the glass door is hard to open and close so sometimes you need to kick it 
sometimes violently, would you agree there should be no penalty for this? Noron from Connecticut writing in. <laughs> uh, what, kicking the doors? You shouldn't be opening it during the middle of a game, should you? So, so there's a penalty in itself, opening the door when you're um, in the middle of the game. Yeah, so, so, so being somewhat facetious, obviously, um, Noran Gohar's, the Hamami-Gohar match at the end of the year during the World Tour Finals produced a, a lot of controversy. A lot of people making the huge leap in comparing Noran Gohar to Asal with her blocking, but more with her outbursts. So, and that weren't, I mean, she violently kicked the front door, uh, the, the back wall door and did not get a code of conduct. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? And what are your thoughts on, you know, it's always been the men's side, but now with the women's side, I mean, the Hamami Gohar matches, I love them personally. There are, they are compelling viewing, but they are getting to the point where there's a, a little much on each side. And it's especially, it seems on Noron's side and kicking the door kind of, uh, kind of illuminated that. So just give me your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's getting very emotional, isn't it? I mean, what you have to say is they're two incredible athletes playing at a ferocious pace and they're sort of leaving everything out there. And, and you know, you, you're seeing 90 minutes. They're 90-minute epics, aren't they, generally, between them and, and yeah. longer. So yeah. people take... It's probably averaging out at 90-odd minutes now when they, mm-hmm. when they play. So, I mean, they're ferocious battles. I think, yeah, they've got that sort of... That potential where they are going... They're going over that tipping point where they're both sort of really, you know, they're, they're on the edge. And again, that's going to come down to directives and officials actually, you know, implementing the rules, keeping a handle on it and stepping in earlier rather than later to be able to sort it out before it gets to crucial moments where all of a sudden you're in a fifth game and you're having to hand out a code of conduct in that situation. You know, it's how can the challenge is, and it's not an easy one, it's how do you solve it before it actually gets to that point how do you calm the situation before it gets to that point how do you you stop it so that you're not in a fifth game where these things are happening and you know there's a couple of incidences right in the back end of of matches between those two Mm -hmm. where you could actually go well that warrants a conduct stroke there um now whether the referee goes back and retrospectively awards a code of conduct and a conduct stroke well, that is another matter, you know, if they've missed it in the moment. Only the referee can sort of speak for themselves in terms of that situation, the reason why they might not have given a conduct stroke and the sort of the, the circumstances around it that maybe led led to that situation. Ha- but has, that, doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that the behaviour doesn't warrant a code of, code of conduct or a conduct stroke. That's, that's should, the other thing. In, in your tenure uh, at the PSA, has there ever been a woman suspended for on-court behaviour? banned for any amount of time not that not that i can remember okay just curious i mean i got, I, got I can't remember many men being banned well you can get you some name many men yeah i saw yeah no, M- many i said mustafa al certi not any but what banned for i thought mustafa, wasn't wasn't mustafa al certi banned for behavior on court or and do uh yeah. Uh, they've all been short, small bands. And obviously it always comes to us all because he's such a great player and he's number one in the world or in the top three. So the lower ranked players, when they're banned, nobody really, people just shrug their shoulders. And like, for the most Mind part, you, they're, they're, they're pretty big names, aren't you? The name Dazuki is he's, he's a big for, for sure, but they're not the marquee players. So if a Dazuki doesn't show up at your tournament, it's not like a Sal not coming to your tournament because, uh, because he was suspended. Right. I mean, you're not, you're, God bless Dasuki. I love just watching Dasuki mm-hmm. play, but you're not selling tickets for Dasuki, right? For, right? for a tournament. So that that was my point. So conduct on you, Lee, for questioning my uh, my rationale, by the <laughs> way. Uh, 
So I appreciate you coming in. I was um, just, I was just interested. No, no, I'm, ca- I'm ca- Yeah, no, I appreciate that. If you look on the uh, on the PSA website, you'll see the list of bands, and then you could ask Lee Beachill what accommodation means, and just get back hmm. to me on that. The last question I was going to ask you: Do you miss doing the PSA commentary? So you used to be um, you were a, you were a regular. I mean, you were yeah, some some yeah, for, some, some people's favorites. Yeah, was, I mean that's nice to hear. But for a long time, I was. Yeah, I was, I was obviously a com- commentator for a long time. No, of course, I miss it. Yeah, it's good. It's good fun, isn't it? And mm-hmm. um, you know, officiating, like you say, it's one of the most controversial sort of areas. But I, I also, you know, I don't underestimate, and I realise the importance of officiating, and and also the need to try and you know get it to another place and to mm. sort of get it into a high performing industry and that in itself it's a bit of a legacy piece you know if you can actually get a bit yeah. of a foundation going and and get it into a good place it can make a huge difference right to the game right. the way the game is portrayed the you know the game the way the game is played so that that's sort of what what does draw me towards this challenge and, and being able to do that so yeah i enjoyed commentary i, I miss commentary and i love doing it um and obviously, if I ever do it again, then that'd be great. But also, at, the, at this moment in time, this is sort of my new challenge, and it's quite a big challenge that needs needs addressing. So, just having a go at it, seeing if I can if I can leave it in a bit better place, and then seeing what's next. So, all right, yeah. Lee, I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to another show on SQR Squash Radio. We really do appreciate you taking the time to listen, and we have a quick ask. In an effort to help us grow, if you have a quick minute, please consider sharing an episode with a friend who might be interested or leaving a rating on any of the platforms that you listen to your podcast. It would mean a lot to me and the rest of the team. Thanks so much and have a great day.